All right, so last week we did uh, chapter 17, the last part of 16 and all of 17, and we saw the seventh bowl brought a great earthquake. We saw that it split Jerusalem into three parts. The cities of the earth are destroyed. Babylon the Great is judged, and we're going to see that continue in chapter 18. What we saw in 17 was um, the ecclesiological aspect or the religious aspect of Babylon judged, the false church, the apostate church. This week, we're going to see something different. So this false church comes onto the scene when the church, the real church, us, gets raptured. We get taken off the planet. Well, guess what? What takes the void? The false church. This false church that arises that's tied directly to Antichrist. Um, the love of religion does not go away with our departure. People have always loved religion, but it will just be a false religion. It won't have any semblance of Christianity attached to it. And Antichrist will control it. Remember, we saw the vision of the prostitute riding the beast. It's that symbiotic relationship, and that will take place in the end times. But then at the midway point of the tribulation, when he sets up the, the idol of himself in the Holy of Holies, and he desecrates the temple of God, and he turns on the people of God, he will also turn on this false church because he doesn't need it anymore. He doesn't need the competition, and so he'll get rid of it. And what we saw is that God will use Antichrist and his associates, the kings of the earth, who work under him and for him, they will attack this false church and get rid of it. And God will destroy this apostate church because he hates apostate churches, but he will do it by using Antichrist and his forces. But we're going to see today he's not done. Chapter 18 is going to bring direct destruction from God on Antichrist's global empire. Now, as we go through this chapter, what I, what I want you to kind of do is uh, look at it from two perspectives. We're, we're looking at, at what I believe is a literal kingdom. It's a global kingdom run by Antichrist, who's been put there by who? Satan. Remember, we saw Satan giving him his power, his throne, and his authority. He rules the world. Now, we've never seen anything remotely like what we're seeing in, in Revelation in the, the end times. We've seen great empires, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. We've seen, uh, you know, the Nazis. We've seen all kinds of people attempt to have what? A global empire, take over the world. Um, and yet none have done what this guy will do. He will have a literal global empire. He will run the world. And so you got to keep that in mind as we go through this because the makeup of his kingdom is what's essential. What does his kingdom look like? What is the nature, the characteristics of his kingdom? And, I, and part of what I want us to see today is that what we see in, in a great way in the book of Revelation in the end times, we're seeing in a smaller way today, that kingdom, that world. Because guess what? Who's the ruler of this world right now? It's Satan. He rules the world. He, he controls those who are not in Christ. He, he controls kings and kingdoms. Yes, God puts them on the throne. Yes, God is ultimately in control, but he's given Satan the ability to rule this world. And we're going to see in the end times that he will rule everything through Antichrist in this global kingdom. So chapter 18, verse 1, 
John says, after this, after what? After he saw the demise of the apostate church, he says, I saw another angel, another of the same kind, is what the Greek word means, coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now this is interesting. We've seen this multiple times already. He's, this angel is speaking in the past, past tense. And this whole chapter is somewhat in the past tense. It's looking back on the destruction that's already taken place, the fall of Babylon. Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now we're going to come back to unpack what those verses are telling us. But one of the things that jumped out at me as I was studying this chapter is there's a, a, a whole series of statements, people saying something. Uh, we have it right from the beginning. The angel calls out with a mighty voice. Now, there's only two words um, in this chapter for speaking, um, and they both mean relatively the same thing, but what we see is people saying something about what? The fall of Babylon. And so what I want us to do is kind of think through, here is Babylon the Great, it's going to fall, it's going to be destroyed by God, what are the reactions to that? And what I, what I want you to kind of always have in the back of your mind, what would your reaction be to that? If this world system as we know it, if it were suddenly to go away, let's just say if democracy as we know it went away, and we all kind of fear that in the back of our minds because the track of our country how would you react to that? Because we're going to see the reactions of those living during the day. So we see the angel, skip down to verse 4. I heard another voice coming from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Saying, speaking, declaring, come out of her. And we'll look at that in a second. Skip down to verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality, they're going to stand far off in fear of her torment and say something. They're going to speak. They're going to declare something. Verse 15, the merchants of these wares, those who sell, those who make money off of commodities and the exchange of goods, guess what? They're going to weep and they're going to mourn aloud and they're going to say something. They're going to respond to what? The fall of Babylon. Skip down to verse 17, all the shipmasters, the seafaring men, the sailors, they cried out, they spoke out as they saw the smoke of her burning, and they're going to say something. They're going to respond. Verse 21, then another mighty angel takes up a stone, and he throws it into the sea, saying something. So you've got angelic beings saying something, and you've got earthly people saying something, but they're all responding to what? The fall of Babylon. What is Babylon? Well, we'll take a look at that. Go into the first part of chapter 19, which we'll look at next week. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, saying something, responding. And as we'll see next week, their response is radically different than that of the people living on the earth, the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the sailors. But you just keep seeing all these responses to what? The fall of Babylon. The entire chapter 18 is about what? The fall of Babylon the demise of this world empire ruled by Antichrist and empowered by Satan. So what's the point? What's going on here? 
as we read a book like Revelation, it's the natural thing to do is to look at what is happening because there's a lot happening, right? Last week, we, we were kind of like blown out of the water with all that was happening, all the imagery. And it's normal to look at what's happening, but I think the point of chapter 18 is how are people responding to what is happening? What's the response to the fall of Babylon? And, and more than worrying a whole lot about, particularly is, it, is, is Babylon, Babylon rebuilt or is it uh, a symbol for Rome or it, maybe it's, it's America, you know, all the debates that go on within the prophetic community. The real important thing here to me is what's the response to this thing that falls, this thing called Babylon? Because it brings about a variety of just interesting reactions. But I do think we have to look at what does Babylon stand for? I believe, as I said before, it's a real city that will be rebuilt. I believe it is Babylon, the Babylon, the same Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar ruled, the same Babylon that defeated Judah and took them into captivity, the same Babylon that came from Babel in Genesis. I think it's the same place that gets rebuilt by who? Antichrist. And why does he rebuild that particular city? Because it was the poster boy for everything anti-God. Always has been. And he rebuilds it. And it becomes not only his city, his headquarters, his capital, it becomes the name of his kingdom, his worldwide kingdom. But it also represents all that's evil. Um, you guys know I, I, I love history and, and I, I love World War II for some reason. I don't know why, but um, if, you, if you go back and study the history of World War II, you see that, you know, again, Hitler built this kingdom. He was attempting to build this worldwide empire that everybody else on earth believed was what? Evil, the epitome of evil. There were those who said he's the Antichrist. Well, Take that and all the, <clears throat> all the things that they did and, and then just blow it way out of proportion. And that's what we're looking at here is a kingdom, a worldwide evil system that controls everything on the planet. But it, it stands for not only a real empire, but again, the, the symbol is of all that stands opposed to God. I'm blogging through Isaiah right now. I'm on chapter 65. And all throughout the book of Isaiah, it talks about Babylon. It talks about Babylon before there's a Babylon. In other words, he's prophetically speaking about a Babylon that's going to destroy Judah before they've even become that Babylon. Assyria is the big dog in the block, but he's talking about Babylon. And he, and he has all kinds of prophetic statements about Babylon and how evil they are and how wicked they are because it's a symbol of all that stands opposed to God. The passion for power and prominence and prestige and stuff and things and control, it's man's attempt to be God. That's what Babylon symbolizes. If you go all the way back to Babel, the Tower of Babel and Nimrod, you know, after the flood, God says, spread out across the, the world and replenish it and repopulate it. But you read in chapter 15 and it says, no, they stopped at this place and they built a tower, a ziggurat, and they built it to the skies because they wanted to make a name for themselves and build a reputation for themselves. And God looked down and he says, if I don't stop this, it's going to get out of control. And so he confused their languages. 
They no longer could understand one another and they were forced to do God's will. But see, what they were doing was disobeying God's direct will. Spread out, repopulate, go across the world. No, we don't want to do that. We want to stay right here and build a reputation and a name for ourselves. That's where it began. It's all about power and prominence and position and control. And I don't want to be controlled by God. I want to be God. Babylon exists anywhere and everywhere. What? Godlessness is mixed with a desire for godlike control. Now stop right there. Is this a problem today? Heck yeah, it's a problem today. It's everywhere. It's not just our government. It's within businesses. It's within communities. It's within marriages. This idea of when you mix godlessness, a lack of a love for and a, a, a respect for God, in, inevitably you're going to want to be God and you're going to want to have godlike qualities. I want to be in control. I want to rule the world. Whatever my world is, my little world, it could be my home, it could be my office, it could be whatever. I want to control that and rule that. The spirit of Babylon permeates our world. But again... We're looking into the future when it will definitely permeate the world in the form of a real kingdom ruled by a real ruler for a seven-year period of time. And it's always accompanied by three things, pride, immorality, and injustice. <clears throat> always. You see it all through Jeremiah. You see it all through the book of Isaiah. And we're going to see it as we study this chapter. But just to give you an idea of what the pride of Babylon looks like, go back to Daniel, the story of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar stands on the tower of his great palace and he says, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. You see the pride inherent in anybody who begins to get control, who gets power. Suddenly, look what I did. Look how great I am. What happened to him right after this? He's out wandering around the field eating grass like a wild animal because God said, you think you're that great? Watch this. And he loses his mind for a period of time until he repents. Well, what about immorality? If you go back and study anything about the Babylonians, they were an immoral people. It was part of their worship. It was part of the way they did things. They had prostitutes who worked in the temple. Don't you know that would skyrocket attendance in any church? Let's bring in some prostitutes, some priestesses. Honey, going to church. You never go to church. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to this church. Well, look at this. King Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, prepared a banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in front of them. And the, the, the context here is he's drinking a lot of wine. While under the influence of the wine, in other words, he's drunk, Belshazzar issued an order to bring in the gold and silver vessels, the ones that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had confiscated from the temple in Jerusalem. You see what he's doing here? He's got this party going on. He's entertaining all his guests, and he's serving wine, and they're all getting drunk. And he goes, hey, I got a great idea. Let's go get the golden vessels and the silver vessels that we've got stored away that my father stole from the temple in Jerusalem, and we're going to drink from those. So the king and his nobles, together with his wives and his concubines, drank from them. It doesn't stop there. So they brought them in. 
They had been confiscated from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, together with his wives and his concubines, drank from them. Built into this passage is the idea that there's a lot more going on here than just some drinking. There's probably a little bit of sexual immorality going on as well. This is a drunken orgy. And as they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Oops, they're not worshiping the right God. So you see the pride, but you also see the immorality. And you can go to secular works and you can study and read about the immorality of Babylon. What about injustice? In Jeremiah, God says, listen to what I, the Lord, have planned against Babylon, what I intend to do to the people who inhabit the land of Babylonia. Their little ones will be dragged off. I will completely destroy their land because of what they have done. Now, you see this over and over again in both Isaiah and Jeremiah as God says, I'm going to do to Babylon what they have done to others. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you ought to stop and go, well, wait a minute. God, you're the one that told them to go defeat Judah and take them into captivity. You said that Nebuchadnezzar was a rod in your hand accomplishing your will against your rebellious people. Yes, that's true. Then why are you punishing them for doing what you told them to do? Because they enjoyed it. See, he used them and they enjoyed being used for that purpose, destroying not only Judah and Jerusalem, but people in the whole area. But they took it to a degree that God never asked them to. They enjoyed doing it, and then they punished the people in ways that God never intended. And so God says, guess what? I'm going to bring justice against your injustice. But you got immorality, pride, and injustice. Again, three things we see alive and well even today within our context. So we're going to see as we look at this chapter what happens. Babylon the Great, the symbol of evil, not only in the end times, but it's the symbol of evil of all times, is going to fall. It's going to be destroyed by God. And it's a picture of God destroying the, the kingdom of Satan. See, what we got to wake up and realize is that around us and all that we see in the newspaper and all we see in the internet and all the stuff that gives us so much angst is the kingdom of Satan doing battle with the, the kingdom of God. It's light versus darkness. It, it, and it's a battle that we're going to see is very lopsided. It, it, we know how it ends. They lose. But that doesn't mean it's not a real battle. That doesn't mean it doesn't have real ca uh, casualties, that there aren't people being destroyed, families being destroyed, marriages being destroyed. We are living in a day when there is spiritual warfare between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. It's been going on since the fall. But there's a day coming when God will destroy it. But when it gets destroyed, this is what's interesting to me. When it gets destroyed, what's the response? When, when you see, within our culture, when you see um, votes that go, I'll just say, our way, how does the other side respond? Anger, vehemence, same way we respond when things don't go our way. We, we respond, we have a reaction, and that's what we're going to see in this passage. What's the reaction to the fall of evil? Because that's really what's happening. God is destroying evil the kingdom of Satan on earth as ruled by Antichrist. 
Verse 1, fallen, fallen is Babylon. So how do people respond? Well, what do the kings of the earth do? All those who have aligned themselves with Antichrist, this includes the kings of the east who are going to come across the Euphrates River, set up camp in the valley of Megiddo in order to do battle against God, battle against Christ, battle against Israel. How do they respond? Well, they cry. They cry over what? Their loss, their loss of power, their loss of position, their loss of prominence. They say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. You're going to see that phrase over and over again. In a single hour. Is it a literal hour? I don't know. But I do know this. It won't take God long. I don't know how long it takes him, Antichrist, to build Babylon, rebuild Babylon, but it's not going to take God long to destroy Babylon. How long did it take him to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Not long at all. So how do they respond? Alas, alas, whoa, whoa. Now, got to keep in mind, they don't really miss Babylon. They miss what Babylon did for them. And that's what's true today. It's what does this world system do for me? Well, it, it brought them loss. It shocked them. It dismayed them. It disappointed them. It discouraged them. Why? Because they had literally gone to bed with evil and benefited from evil. When it says sexual immorality, and you know, it, yes, I think there was sexual immorality going on, but I think that really has much more to do with spiritual infidelity. They had aligned themselves with the wrong God. They had aligned themselves with an immoral infrastructure and they had gained from it. Now, you know, just like I know, you have seen people at your workplace, you've seen people in politics who are immoral people, godless people, and they seem to do so stinking well. And you look at that and go, how can this be just? How can this be fair? I mean, we see this in Job, the book of Job. You see it in David where, you know, God, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It happens. People gain personally from what? Aligning themselves with evil. It's part of this world system. Satan knows enough to reward people for their allegiance. If he doesn't reward them, they're not going to stay with him. So these kings got power from who? Antichrist, because they aligned themselves with Antichrist and his kingdom. When his kingdom falls, what happens? They lose it all. How about the merchants? All those who buy, who sell. Remember, you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast because he controls the economic system of that time. Well, they cry over financial loss. There's a benefit to doing business with the world. The fruit for which you long for, they say, has gone from you. All your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. They mourn the loss of all the wealth and splendor of Babylon because they benefited from it. They lost money because of it. Their portfolio dropped like a rock because they had aligned themselves with evil and God is destroying evil. See, godlessness does have benefits. And we shouldn't be shocked that those who aren't in Christ, who don't have a relationship with God, align themselves with evil because guess what? There are benefits for doing so. And it's what tempts you and I to do it, to compromise our faith and give in to what the world says because we know if I do, I'll benefit. But that's a dangerous thing for any of us who are followers of Christ to do. 
See, it says multiple times in a single hour, the wealth of Babylon has been laid waste. It is eliminated. God doesn't take long to get rid of it. All the pomp, all the circumstance, all the gold, the silver, it's all gone. And there's a list in this chapter of all the things, the fabric, the gold, the jewels, the silver, all that stuff is going to just evaporate. Guess what? Everything you own right now, everything you relish in, in grabbing your hands and will not let go of, when you die, your hand will let go of it. You will not take it with you. It's just the nature of the beast. But look at this. Compare this verse with 1 Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. But it's a different kind of gain. God didn't promise to make me wealthy. And if he's smart, he never will because I, know, I won't know what to do with it and I'll be destroyed by it. But there is a great gain that comes from godliness. But there's another kind of great gain that comes from godlessness. And that's what Satan is always selling. Do this and I'll reward you. It's exactly what he did with Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Worship me. Disobey God, worship me, and I'll reward you. I'll benefit you. What do the ship captains and sailors have to say? Well, they cry over, again, irreplaceable revenue. They made their living off of carrying the goods that the merchants were buying and selling from Babylon to Babylon across the seas, and they've lost it all. Alas, alas, for the great city where all had ships at sea, grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. They had profited from worldliness. They had profited from godlessness, but their losses were irreversible. They would never make it up. It's not like there was another dog on the block. There, there wasn't another Walmart down the street they could do business with. It's gone. God destroys it. Evil is eliminated. And they're in mourning because of all their losses. Paul told Timothy, people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. He's telling Timothy this in the first century. Now we're seeing fast forward into the end times and we're seeing this reality lived out. This truth manifested in a major way. This is not an indictment against wealth. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is immoral. It has no morality to it. We give it its immorality. Satan gives it its immorality. It's what you do with it. It's whether you crave it and worship it, and you can't live without it. But he, he tells Timothy, hey, you got to realize that if you love money, you're going to have a real problem. And we see in the end times that these ship captains, these merchants, these kings love power, they love money, they love opulence, they love everything they can get from this world system. And he goes on to tell Timothy in his second letter, he says, in the last days, and guess what? He believed they were living in the last days. Guess what? We're living in the last days. What we're doing is we're seeing the last days, the last of the last days, as we study this book. But he says, in the last days, there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving, unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. Does that sound remotely familiar? I mean, is that not our society? 
They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Do you see what, what rose up? As soon as the church is taken off the planet, what rose up? Religion minus godliness. God has no interest in religion. What he has an interest in is godliness. They'll reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. And we're going to see that same statement made in this chapter as the angel calls out to the believers living on the planet, come out of Babylon, get out of Babylon, get out of Dodge, stay away from her. But it's interesting, there's no cry of sorrow for sin. There's no remorse, there's no regret, there's no repentance anywhere in this chapter. Babylon has fallen, this world system has fallen, all kinds of financial loss, all kinds of power loss, but nobody cries out, even though they know God's judging the world. It's, it's, it's just sad. It's, it's a picture of what the world is really like even now, but we're seeing the underbelly exposed like never before. See, they've fallen in love with Babylon. And that's a danger that each, each of us face as we live in this world. That's why John wrote in his first letter, don't love this world nor the things it offers you. And guess what, guys? That is the hardest command for you and I to obey. Because we're wired to love this world. Everything in us wants to love this world and everything it offers us. But he goes on and says, for when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means you're loving the wrong thing. You're misappropriating God's love. And rather than showering it on his children, you're showering it on stuff. You're obsessed with the wrong thing. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions which leads to pride, injustice, and immorality. And they're not from God, they're from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. That's the point of this book, the book of Revelation. It ends really well with those of us in Christ who are with him are going to come back with him. We're going to rule with him. Those who have come to faith in Christ who are living during the tribulation will also rule with him. And we will live with him for how long? For eternity. Godliness has great gain. Godlessness doesn't. For all the nations, it says, have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Again, I don't think the point here is literal sex. I think it has to do with spiritual immorality. The kings have committed immorality. The merchants have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. What is that talking about? What's the point here? Interesting use of words here. The word for power is dynamis, where we get, or dunamis, where we get dynamite. It, it's, it's incredible power, but it's power in this context that belongs to riches and wealth. See, riches and wealth have power. If you have money, you can do things. If you have money, you can influence things. We have billionaires and millionaires who influence politics all the time with their money. Money brings power. Again, money's not the problem. It's the people behind the money. But it says power. They got power by aligning themselves with a wrong way of life, an evil way of life, an evil world system. And it was all for what I get out of it. Purely selfish. And the truth is, everybody who runs for office, I'm convinced, whether, you know, whether they're right, left, pretty much is running for themselves. 
And I'm sure there's a handful of really good people with good hearts, but it doesn't take long for those hearts to get really calloused. Ultimately, it's all about selfishness. The love of money becomes our God, and we're in it for us. And that's what we see in this passage. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. And Jesus Christ told us in his Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It is impossible. And if you think you can, you're delusional. And you're also contradicting the very words of Jesus Christ. He says, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Yes, it's about eternity. It's about your soul. But when he says, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food, drink, enough clothes to wear, isn't that what we worry about? There's not a guy in this room who really literally has to worry about whether I have enough food to eat. What we worry about is the quality and the quantity of the food we eat, right? It's, it's not, gee, am I going to get a meal today? It's like, how many and how big? And what do I get to eat? And it's not whether I have clothes to wear, it's what clothes should I wear? Or in my case, what clothes still fit? You know, it's not a matter of lacking clothes. It's just that they either don't fit or they've gone out of style. You know, it's, but we still worry about these things. But Jesus said, don't. And the angel calls, come out of her, get out of her, get out of Dodge, remove yourself from Babylon, have nothing to do with her. This angel is telling the 144,000 and every person who's been redeemed during the tribulation to disassociate, have nothing to do physically or spiritually with Babylon. Because guess what? I'm going to destroy it. And that's a call that I think is going out to you and I today. Come out of Babylon. We got to live in the world, we, we, but we don't have to be of this world. We got to function in this world. You got to go to work. You got to make a living, but it doesn't mean I have to love this world. See, Isaiah says this, leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce it with a shout of joy, make this known, proclaim it throughout the earth. Now here's, here's the interesting thing. When this is written, they're in captivity. They're living in Babylon and God is going to set them free. And here is the prophet saying, when that happens, come out, leave Babylon. Guess what? The majority of the people of Judah stayed in Babylon when God gave them the chance to leave Babylon because they had fallen in love with Babylon. They didn't want to leave. Jeremiah says the same thing. People of Judah, get out of Babylon quickly. When the time comes, leave the land of Babylonia. Be the first to depart. Don't wait for the next bus. Get out now. But the majority of them stayed in Babylon. Only a remnant went back to the land. See, many in the church today love Babylon. They love this world. They love what this world gives them. And if this world were to go away, they would weep over their loss, over their lack of money, their lack of power. Paul says the same thing, basically. He says, present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world. Don't be like this world. Be set apart. Be different. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be like what God wants you to be, but don't love this world because guess what? God's going to pay Babylon back double for everything she's ever done. He's going to pay evil back double for her deeds, mix a double portion for the cup that she has poured out. She's glorified herself. She's lived in luxury. Give her a double measure of torment and mourning. She said, I'm no widow. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'll never mourn. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. 
See, the world system thinks it will last forever. Guess what? It won't. It doesn't matter if we end up staying a democracy or we go socialist. I got an opinion on which way I'd like that to go. But either way doesn't guarantee us a preferred future. Only God can guarantee us a preferred future. For mighty is the Lord who has judged her. And then it ends with this statement. The mighty angel takes a stone, a great millstone. He throws it into the sea and he says, so will Babylon the great city be. And what's really fascinating about this to me and why I love studying the scriptures is this. Go all the way back to Jeremiah. Thousands of years earlier. And look what happens. Jeremiah says to Sarai, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words, the words that he's written in a book, in a scroll, and say the judgments of God, they're written down. Say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off. What place? Babylon. So that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, Sarai, tie a stone to it and cast it in the midst of the sea, the Euphrates River. And say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Here is God prophesying through Jeremiah thousands of years before John had these, these visions, telling about the angel throwing the millstone into the sea, which I believe to be the Euphrates River, and... What happens? They're thrown down with violence. No one will be found. No sound of harpists, musicians, of flute players, of trumpeters will be heard in you no more. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be no more. He's, he's describing complete destruction of everything evil that's represented by Babylon. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. Your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her... Catch this, were found, was found the blood of the prophets and saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Literal martyrs during the tribulation, past martyrs that Babylon killed centuries earlier, God's going to pay her back and it will be devastating and it will be complete. But there's good news and we need some good news, right? Here's the good news. This is another prophetic passage. Now, I want you to pay real careful attention. Prophetic passage written thousands of years earlier telling what the good news is that's going to accompany this very bad news for Babylon. Nevertheless, the time will come when I will heal Jerusalem wound, Jerusalem's wounds and give it prosperity and true peace. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel and rebuild their towns. I will cleanse them of their sins against me and forgive all their sins of rebellion. Then this city, what city? Jerusalem will bring me joy, glory, and honor before all the nations of the earth. In the empty streets of Jerusalem and Judah's other towns. Now, this is what's really important. There will be heard once more the sounds of joy and laughter. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will be heard again, along with the joyous songs of people bringing thanksgiving offerings to the Lord. It goes on, the day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised. In those days, at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. In that day, what day? The day we're studying about in the book of Revelation. Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. 
See, God's going to destroy evil. God's going to destroy Babylon. God's going to destroy Antichrist and the false prophet. God's going to do something with Satan. God's going to take care of the evil problem, and he's going to do everything he promised for Israel. I think this is talking about Israel, Jerusalem, Judah. Why? Because that's what it says. God keeps his promises. This is not some kind of a bait and switch where, well, I know I said Judah and Jerusalem, but I really meant the church. Are we going to benefit from Christ setting up his kingdom? No doubt about it. We're going to spend eternity with him. We're going to rule alongside him. But God's going to do what he said he's going to do. And it's interesting that he uses this, this idea of in Babylon, no singing, no marriages, no joy, no laughter, no merchants. But what's going to happen in Israel? What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Everything that's not happening in Satan's kingdom, we get blessed. Godliness does have great gain. And we're going to see next week, there's a lot of reason to rejoice even now, which leads us to our questions. Why should you and I be able to rejoice about things that have not even taken place yet? See, chapter 18 has not taken place yet. It's going to take place. Why should we be able to rejoice right here, right now, around these tables, thanking God for what he's going to do? Because it tells us that our God is faithful. Discuss ways in which we exhibit an inordinate and inappropriate love for Babylon in our own lives. Why do we love this world system so much? And what is it we hope to get from it? And this is where I need you to be brutally honest, guys. Well, I don't love Babylon. You're, you're, you're a liar. I love Babylon. You love Babylon. What does that look like in your life? And how do we get out of that? How do we get out of Babylon? Finally, I want someone to read Revelation 19, verses 4 through 5. Take a few minutes before you leave today to praise God for all that he's going to do in the future. Make it your closing prayer. And my hope is every guy around the table will express some form of praise to God for what he's going to do in the future. Because if he doesn't do it, guess what? We have no hope in the present. If what we just read today does not take place, we have no hope. We have no hope against Babylon. It will win. But see, I have hope because I know how the story ends. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for giving it to John to write down for us. And I pray that you would wake, wake us up, open our eyes, help us to see the reality that the kingdom of Satan is alive and well. And it's surrounding us. But Father, we don't need to fear it. We just need to come out of it. We need to see it for what it is. We need to see it as a lie. We need to see it as offering things it can't deliver. And that, Father, there are many who have been sucked into the void. May we speak truth into their lives. Help them to see the reality of what the true kingdom, the kingdom of God looks like. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the coming King. Lord, bless the time around the tables, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.